Scaffold is supported by the Architecture Foundation, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. For more information and upcoming events, visit architecturefoundation.org.uk. From the Architecture Foundation, I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and you're listening to Scaffold. This year has seen public interest in the monarchy reach a polarized fever pitch. The sense of awe and delight around royal pomp has been matched by a growing scrutiny about the place of monarchy in public life, as well as a rising tide of republicanism. And it's all happening at a moment, as many have observed, of a heightened unease about Britain's place in the world and the state of its own politics. For me, though, what's been missing about the coverage of the monarchy this year are questions about its personal stakes. How do we shape our sense of self in relation to the presence of some abstract sovereign power? And what happens within us when that power's fault lines are exposed, when its structures are revealed to be paper thin? For my guest this week, the writer and performance artist Charlotte Cooper, the opportunity arose to think about her own relationship to monarchy through a deep and critical and highly unorthodox analysis of the built environment, and in particular, of a place called Poundbury, a new town spearheaded 30 years ago by the then Prince of Wales. I actually went to Pembury the other week, which is next to Dorchester, two and a half hours southwest of London by train. I was tagging along on a tour organized by the London nonprofit Open City, and what we encountered was what felt like this eerily quiet theme park of traditionalist architecture, full of mock Georgian, Victorian, and arts and crafts buildings. Despite the variety of historical styles on display and their seemingly ad hoc arrangement, Poundbury exudes a feeling of conformism. All tenants sign a covenant that restricts how they can alter their homes. And it's true that when you walk through the town, there's almost no evidence of the individuality of its occupants. And once you reach the limits of the town to see the green fields beyond, you really get the sense you've breached some kind of boundary in a simulation. It's no surprise then that Leon Creer, the lead designer of Poundbury, also designed the new town Seaside in Florida, which doubled as a set for the movie The Truman Show. This hyper-real quality, this faithful reproduction of an imagined historical moment, is what makes Poundbury so interesting. The town becomes this distilled example of what any built environment always is, a manifestation of specific customs, conventions, and ideologies. Charlotte Cooper isn't an architect or an architectural critic. In fact, she's a psychotherapist by training with a PhD in sociology and is best known for her advocacy of fat acceptance and queer rights. I actually first interviewed Charlotte at the very beginning of this podcast project. And if you're interested in learning more about her, you can scroll back to episode three. Anyways, Charlotte's work and this book in particular, which is called Poundbury, A Queer Tour of Monarchy, published by 33 Editions, feels totally independent and liberated from the conventions of academic writing, criticism, poetry, and ethnography. But it's also somehow all of those things. And I think it's because of her position outside of the norm that she's been able to produce this totally singular, deeply intimate, and revealing piece of what amounts to architectural writing, which is what we sat down to discuss when we met last week. So here it is. My interview with Charlotte Cooper on her book, Poundbury, A Queer Tour of Monarchy. You're actually the first 
guest that I've spoken with twice, or I will have spoken with twice. Oh, what a thrill. And it's such a thrill for me, too. And I mean, the reason we're meeting again is to talk about this new book of yours called Poundbury, A Queer Tour of Monarchy, which is authored by your alter ego or your creative practice, which is called Homosexual Death Drive. And I wondered if we could just start with that title, that project. What is Homosexual Death Drive exactly? Homosexual Death Drive is a name that I adopted in 2010. I thought it would be a really good name for a band. So for a while it was kind of a, a band project and I'm a non-musician musician, so it was a bit of a, a shonky, strange, queer band. At that point I didn't really know very much about live art, so um, it took a while for me to realise, oh, that's more where this, this project sits. And as time has passed, um, it's become me, rather than um, me and uh, Kate Hyatt, who's also my partner, who I collaborated with. And it's become me and other people, or me by myself. Um, and the name, it comes from, uh, well, death drive theory, which of course is um, from psychoanalysis. Um, but also queer theorists have, have adopted it. And so there's a, an edge of... Um, sort of a critical view of futurity, progress, reproduction. Um, for me, it's, uh, I don't know, sort of to do with barren, my, my own kind of barrenness as well, uh, my, my, the way I haven't reproduced. Um, yeah, there's, uh, and there's a lot of kind of very sort of dry, high level um, theory on it, unreadable theory. Mm. Um, but for me, I like it because it's got an antisocial kind of feel to it, which sort of fits with my punk roots. Mm. And also I like, you know, the drive, you know, there's some energy to it. And the word homosexual always um, delights me too, so. You've also described it elsewhere as being, or framing an anti-assimilationist approach yes. Yes, yes. to queerness. Yes, yeah, and, and that's something I'm noticing a lot more as I'm getting older as well, um, that well, it's allegedly Pride Month and we can have a Pride um, Parade in uh, London shortly. And, you know, there's a lot of corporate sponsorship going on. But my sensibility around queerness is is not that. It's, it's something else. It is about otherness and about being, um, yeah, being not normal. Yeah. I mean, there's different strands we could pull out of this. And one I kind of want to note is this idea of futurity, mm. the future, yeah. <laughs> um, and what it means as a queer person to you. Yeah. Architecture itself is an embodiment of the future in so many ways. It's inherently speculative. It's about creating new worlds to live in. And I think the world we're going to discuss in more detail is that of Poundbury, yes. which is really a kind of miniature depiction mm. of monarchy, in spatial terms, in aesthetic terms. Mm. Um, but bef before we get into the Poundbury discussion, I want to talk more about you or situate you and you and I uh, in our conversation in relation to a project like Poundbury. Mm. So we've talked about the authorship, the identity of the author as being this concept of the death drive, the homosexual death drive. I wondered if we could talk a bit about Charlotte Cooper now. Who I am? <laughs> Who am I? And specifically in the way that you introduce yourself in the mm. beginning of the book. Yes. I mean, 
I don't know if it's something you want to read out or if I could paraphrase. Well, I could read it if you like. I think it's so beautiful and it does so much so quickly to um, bring us right alongside you. Okay, so this is, this is sort of me, but it's me playing a role as well. Uh, and it's in a section called Groom of the Stool. My name is Homosexual Death Drive. This is my voice. I'm your tour guide for Poundbury. Shall I give you a twirl? I'm a middle-aged fat dyke. I'm white with straight brown hair and rosacea, which sometimes make me, makes me look like a little red potato. I'm working class, and you can tell this from my appearance because I've had many fillings in my teeth, tattooed hands, and a survivor's body. My ancestral roots are in the workhouse, the mine, the building site, the job centre, the service industry. I'm able to stand and dance and walk about, but my joints hurt and I'll need to rest. My accent is all over the place because I'm neurodivergent and I've learned to mask, but it's also because I've moved around. But Stratford in London is my home. When I read that, it brought me to this question about determinism. Because reading the book, ideas of architectural determinism are brought to the fore. The idea that our environments in some very significant ways, shape the way we behave, the way we feel, uh, the way we are in the world. And I think similarly, our bodies do the same. Our ancestry, our own feelings, our own desires do the same in terms of shaping how we are in the world. For me, this introduction felt so familiar, knowing um, other work of yours that there is always, in a way, a physical description mm. uh, that has to do with your fatness. Also, things like rosacea come up often as well. Mm. And this term dyke, which is different than queer or lesbian, these are all specific details that build up a person. Mm. The fillings in your teeth, the tattoos on your hand, mm. the aches in your joints. Mm. And I just wonder if we could talk a little more about determinism from an embodied perspective, mm. if that's even a place that's worth going? Well, with Poundbury, what, one of the, the key things for me, especially on the residence, uh, residency, was about being somebody in this place, being the ki a kind of person that they might not have anticipated being in the place. That I wasn't really, you know, their first choice of person. I'm not a Poundbury person. So I wanted to be, and to really explore and feel um, my otherness in that place too. So hence, you know, the, the bits about being a skulking queer and um, yeah, uh, uh, I hurt my knees when I was there as well and that was quite hard to get around. And just, yeah, when I went to the, the talk in, um, in Brown Sword Hall as well, I clearly didn't fit in and the way that people related me not fitting in as well. This is a book club talk that you're yeah there was they they, they do talks um in this somebody a woman arranges talks once a month um at a place called brown sword hall and um and the and the the time that i was there i luckily coincided with a talk which was about reading fiction reading fiction being good for you and i was sorry to miss the talk that came the month after which was about um uh, I think it was about somebody who worked in the weapons industry <laughs> who was talking about um, uh, robot weapons or something like that, which sounded completely fascinating. So she sets up these talks and I went to, a, to, to one of them and I clearly wasn't of there. I mean, I wasn't grey haired. Um, I wasn't drinking. Um, nobody recognised me. I was kind of trying to 
you know, keep on the down low, but um, I was spotted and, and, and a couple of people were quite curious about who I was too. So in terms of the determinism, it, for me it was about navigating, yeah, not, not of this place, not really belonging here, you know, what is my take on it? it felt, I felt that it gave me a very special view of the place because I hadn't been sort of drawn along. I was going there going, oh, what's this? You know, that looks weird. And having and honouring and respecting my own feelings about it too. So for example, when I saw the youth shelter, you know, I was absolutely aghast. I thought, this is how they treat young people here. <laughs> you know, this, is the, this is the amenities they've set up for young people. This is atrocious. Um, yeah, so there was a lot of kind of feeling, experiencing, moving, dancing. Um, yeah, a lot of kind of uh, somatics uh, were, were going on. Um, yeah, and the determinism, again, I come back to one of the, um, the funds that I initially tried to get for it, which I failed to get, was, um, was a memorial fund for a person called Catherine Araniello, who's a really fantastic disabled uh, live artist. Um, and, uh, and her work was often about being the, the wrong person. In, in a place that hadn't anticipated her presence. So I really drew a lot of, um, yeah, a lot from that actually, um, her work and also Aaron Williams, and they worked together as the disabled avant-garde mm -hmm. and did some wonderful work, um, kind of just showing up in places where, yeah, they weren't expected to be. Mm. Um, yeah, and how disrupted that is in a productive way. It really did feel so productive to me as a reader to encounter your, your other perspective of this place where you're so conscious of not belonging. You're so out of water that you become alert and attuned to what would otherwise be quite a banal and everyday environment. And I think that alertness, that awareness that comes through the product of estrangement is what makes any writing good. Oh, Matthew, bless your heart, bless your heart. <laughs> if it is true, and I think that part of that estrangement also has to do with the kind of forms you explore in writing the book. So if we can try and unpack a bit what exactly this Pambury project is, it's at once a kind of clear-eyed analysis of the conception and development of this new town. You look at the history of um, Charles's ideas about town planning, his fixation with neoclassicism, the relationship he had with Leon Creer and Creer's own attachment to a kind of historicism that borders on uh, infatuation with fascist thinking as well. I mean, there's a, there's a kind of narrative line there that will be familiar to a lot of architect listeners. But at the same time, there's poems dispersed throughout the book. There is memoiristic writing, especially at the beginning. Um, there's some experimentation with AI, which I want to get into mm -hmm. as well, where you're co-authoring certain passages. Mm -hmm. And so it's an avant-garde book. It is an art book, as you've described it elsewhere. Yes. And I wonder if you could talk a bit about the shape of the book. Yes. So it's a book, but it's also an expanded book as well, because there are these other aspects to it. It's a research project. It was a visit to the palace to maybe meet Camilla. It was, um, you know, stupid word search games. It was a party where we had performances. It was my performances, music. You know, there were lots of like other bits that aren't in the 
paper. And, and also it's a, a project of, of me learning how to actually make a physical book as well. So, um, so, so it's that. But how it's set up as a, as a text, yeah, it includes lots of things. And as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, my, my scholarly um, practice is really centred on postmodern methodologies, including autoethnography, which includes all this kind of weird stuff in it. So it would include, you know, it, it makes sense to me to include a poem or um, to include some personal writing alongside um, more sort of traditional research or um, uh, analysis of things. And uh, I really like reading stuff that is a mixture of things and so I just write what I like really and because it's my book I've published it I've made it I can do what I like and um, so that's why it's a yeah a mixture of things and, and also I like to make things that have lots of layers to them that you don't have to look at it in one particular way and with Poundbury I think it's really really suffered from the question of is this good architecture or not or or, or um, you know, is this is this a bit naff or, you know, what's the style? It's it's suffered from very kind of what in psychotherapy, in narrative psychotherapy, what we talk of as, as thin stories. And I wanted to make a really, really thick story of it that had so many different elements of it that was about me, but also about politics, also about, you know, my, my view of monarchy, also about, well, I'm not an architect, but, you know, my sense of being in a place and being in a, a planned and built place about... Um, people involved, about um, the way it's reported. Um, yeah, so lots of different parts of it, different um, ways of addressing a text, lots of, um, yeah, styles and a, a real mixture of that. I mean, Poundbury itself is like a really mad mixture of things. So why not write a book that also is a really strange mix of, and that is one thing that sort of is a bit disorientating too. A reader could look at the book and see it as a kind of postmodern construction in a way, yes. in terms of how you're collaging together these different perspectives, these different subjective experiences, with also a kind of dry, analytic, academic voice as well. Yes, I think that's just my style. With something like this anyway, and I'm also thinking about how I might develop it through other texts that I might want to write in the future. And it feels as though as time goes on and I'm less bound by other people and their desires for me, for example, supervision and a PhD or a boss or a manager or an editor or any of that, where I become really more of my own person, that I'm giving myself permission to, to really fly with the, the strangeness and, and to, go where, uh, to go where I want to and, to and to show how I think about things. I think Poundbury for me is a book that shows what goes on in my mind and how I, how I experience things. And, it's not how many, well, as far as I know, not how many people experience things. And it's a kind of a showing, mm. a showing of my interior as mm. well. It really does feel like, as a reader, we're joining you on this odyssey of self-exploration. Mm. I want to I explore more with you this question of why, why Poundbury, exactly? Yeah. I mean, you mentioned at the beginning of the book and the prologue that you've remembered Poundbury for so many years. Mm. And you're asking yourself, why? Why have I remembered? Yes, that was at the root of it. And, and what happened was, um, so I moved around a lot when I was a kid. And one of the places where I lived was Buckingham in Buckinghamshire, which is a very Poundbury-esque looking um, town. It's, it's a bit different now because bits have been added on, just like Poundbury. So that was always a sort of a part of me. 
But I remembered watching news reports when Poundbury was being mooted. And I also remember watching A Vision of Britain because I made a TV show about it too. And thinking... This is a book authored yeah, by... Yeah, it's, it's Charles's Charles. book. It's his, yeah, his, his, his vision of what architecture should be. And so, of course, because he's him, um, he wrote a book or, or, or presumably was helped to write a book. Who knows how the book came about? But there was also a big exhibition at the Victorian Albert. Um, and at, around that time, he was um, what was called meddling as well and making very grand statements and upsetting a lot of people. And um, yeah, so there's this big moment where he was um, man of architecture. And I remembered that and, and didn't really have any kind of conception of it. I guess I was in my late teens when that was, that was happening. But it just stuck, stuck with me. And, and, and when they were, I remember the, the early um, TV reports of Poundbury being built and thinking, oh, those buildings look sort of familiar to me because of my Buckingham reference, but it's also different. And I'd heard of a new town because I also had a connection to Milton Keynes, but a new village? Why would you build a new village? That seemed completely bizarre to me. And again, these earlier forays around monarchy, you know, going to see Trooping of the Colour with my mum and dad and people around us cheering and my mum and dad, you know, also cheering was really bewildering. So it was about a kind of a curiosity that started as a tiny little kind of thing, memory, but really snowballed as the project went on. And, and I feel in doing the project, I, I kind of, yeah, I found the answers really, which is, oh, monarchy, bad idea. And, uh, and look how it, look how it um, enacts its power in such weird ways and such totalitarian ways too. Maybe we could get into that now. I mean, you spent, was it a week? In Only a week. I wish it could have been longer, but that's all I had money for, unfortunately. What are some instances of this totalitarianism that you witnessed? In Poundbury or beyond? I think either, but maybe in first? Or? In Poundbury. So things like street furniture, they all have the duchy insignia on, on them. Nobody is critical. It's so weird. Nobody has a critical view of it at all, apart from is it good architecture, is it bad architecture? Nobody's looking at what I think is greenwashing. Nobody's looking really at the housing policy or what's being offered. It's all presented as, this is great. Look, it's a mixed, um, a mixed development where rich and poor live side by side and you can't tell who's who. You can, of course you can. And the totalitarianism, the way it comes out elsewhere, is in people's absolute sheer delight of any kind of attention from the monarchy. Um, I'm amongst a group of peers now, some of whom have been offered and have taken honours. I mean, to me, why would you take an honour that has the word empire in it? It seems bananas to me. So, um, and going to the palace and meeting Camilla and seeing the toadying and fawning and all of that that was going on around it, this is the way that the totalitarianism I, I think of monarchy um, um, yeah, reproduces itself, that the hierarchy of monarchy, the, the, the deference, the kind of, there's no real sort of heart to it. Is it, is it the, the, the figurehead, the monarch? Is it the, the administration? You know, what is it as well? It's quite hard to tell what that is. And the whole time I was there, I kept flashing on something that I saw also years ago in the, the historical museum in, in Berlin, the, the, the German historical museum, their section on Nazism, 
again, we come back to the Nazis, is astonishing. And one of the exhibits that has stayed with me all this time as well, that really seemed to reference the totalitarianism of, of Poundbury and Monarchy, is there's a doll's house, and it's a Nazi doll's house, and it's got you know, it's got swastika wallpaper on it and little swastika curtains and it's for children and, and it's, it's, it's such an incredible object, a horrifying object, because it shows how normalised it is, how unthinking it is. It's like you play with these symbols, they're just part of your everyday life, you transmit them to your children. It's, you know, it's a, it's a fun thing, it's nice. So um, that, that's a, a kind of a totem that stayed with me in Poundbury, that, you know, the, 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 the power the power plays were being played out through not just the styles of the architecture, but the behaviour of the people in it, um, and also beyond Poundbury as well, the way people relate to the place, um, the way people relate to, um, yeah, a handshake or a banal comment from a monarch if you get to meet one of them at some point. And the, yeah, the honour system and yeah, the way that class plays out and the silences that go on, all of that. I'm so interested in how loaded neoclassicism is, politically and socially, that we associate it with conservatism. <laughs> and yet, there are adherents, admirers, officiandas of classicism that feel embarrassed about what you could think of as their own fetish, in a way, and try and distance themselves uh, or totally abhor these conservative, social conservative associations, uh, or the much worse associations around fascism. Um, and I think for me, it's such an interesting knot to try and undo, because it just means so many things to so many people. Mm. So I guess that's one, in a way, there's a kind of scenario here where we have more voices in the room, and we start to debate and uh, unfold this um, this critique. What do you have to say to the the proponents of this project that um, are simply historical enthusiasts or who see themselves as being benign? <sighs> well, what's being referenced? What period is being referenced? When you talk about tradition, what do you mean by that? Whose tradition? You know, when I tried to find tradition, local tradition, it wasn't pretty. Um, yeah, but it's also making me think about how they can, the, the, how neoclassicism could be transformed or made something else. And you know what, I'm thinking of a Black Lives Matter protest that took place, I think it was in Philadelphia, where, oh God, there was a statue, a man on a horse, a terrible man on a horse, and that statue was eventually removed. But what happened to that statue, which was on a neoclassical pediment, was that the word anyway, you know, a, a thing, um, was it was completely covered in graffiti. And there were photographs that I saw that I still can't take because they're so incredible, of um, two black women dancing, young black women ballet dancing in front of it, you know. That's what I'd like to see. It doesn't mean that these things can't exist, but it's like, how do you, how do you make them? How do you alter them? How do you bring the truth out of them? Because as I was swimming this morning, I was thinking, one of my bugbears about Poundbury is that it's not an honest place. It's, it's pretending to be something that it isn't. That it's, you know, they're talking about how green it is and how, um, how it is invested in, you know, traditional, 
building techniques, but it's also breeze blocks and it's plastic and it's covered in cladding and it's, you know, totally concrete and tarmacked and um, a great place to park your car. Um, so yeah, what what would it make? What 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 would what would bring the truth out of Poundbury? What would show it as it is? I mean, I've tried to do some of that with my own project, but in terms of building and aesthetics or you know artistic responses to it or adapting, I mean, it's against the rules. They have a code, so you're not allowed to you know change anything. But if you could, you know, if you could Photoshop or something, what what would bring the truth out of of it? That's that that interests me a lot. And yeah, these this, this, these images of these these young black women dancing around this incredible graffiti, like dense graffiti on this, um, on this statue was just amazing to me. I thought, wow, there's so much possibility in this. It doesn't have to be, there it is, put up with it. You can also respond to it and make something of it. Which is what your project is doing. I, I mean, so. in a way, y you've also understood it as a kind of performance art piece, mm. that your very presence in this environment could be seen as a performance in some ways. And in fact, you did perform. I mean, there's sketches of certain actions or events that you partook in. I did, yes. Could you describe this one where you're lying uh, in a particular state? Yes, so I stayed, there's only one at the moment, well, when I went there, there was only one, one place to stay that wasn't the Duchess of Cornwall Inn. Um, so I had an Airbnb, which was basically a room above a garage and um, and they don't have, for some reason, some of the, well, I don't, the reason is just so weird. They have buildings that have fake window tax um, windows in. So there aren't that many windows in some of the buildings. We have the technology to make windows, but they haven't put that many windows in. So in the place where I stayed, there was one window, an arched window. And when I stayed there, it was a very sunny time as well. So I was, became quite interested in the way the, the, sh the arch window, the, you know, this neoclassical window, the shadow moved across, um, across the room in the day. So I just lay myself down in it and, um, and made a time-lapse video of myself. You see me breathing really fast and, um, and yeah, the, 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 the shadow um, moving across me. And I also made some videos with um, using um, Instagram filters of me as a sort of a Disney princess, um, yeah, dancing around in some of the more um, virtual reality kind of parts of the development too, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the cover of the book features a <laughs> self-portrait of you with one of these filters. Um, you have doe eyes with lots of mascara, a very red face, and... Um, you're kind of photobombing Poundbury. Yeah, yeah, and I tried to sort of make it hyper-saturated mm -hmm. and unreal as well, which is how I experience the place. And it's a very uncomfortable cover, I've got to say. And it's totally outré. Yes. <laughs> who do you think the book is speaking to or reaching out to, or who does it want to bring into its fold? That is a great question, because I'm not entirely sure. I tend to make things that are primarily for myself as sort of a way of understanding something. So for me, you know, the original question, what on earth is this and what does it mean to me? And if people can find it or relate to it, that's, that's the thing. And I'm not writing for or making stuff for a very large number of people. This is not a mainstream project at all. But what I do like, and here we are, is a conversation about it. Uh, you know, to, to think about things with a bit more depth to share and understand together, that's what I like. So whoever those people are, that's, 
that's who I'm looking for, I think, with, with my work in particular. I mean, I'm mainly known for my work around fat, and that's fine. And this has some fat in it, but it's also, um, yeah, a sort of another, a different kind of space as well. And of course, there's, you know, an architectural component to it. So perhaps people with an interest in architecture will pick it up. There's stuff to do with monarchy, for sure, and people with an interest in monarchy, especially during this period where we've had this big transition, um, might pick it up. Um, queers, also, I hope, will, will pick it up as well. And, you know, live artists, performance artists, there's an element of that. So those are the main people, I imagine. But really, it's, for me, it's about making something that, yeah, that helps me understand and can help me connect with people um, and who those people are well. That's the aim of the project, really. I'll find them. I'll find my people. I want to go back to this, this topic of history and the kind of the other histories maybe that the book is exploring. Mm. At the beginning, you mentioned that after your first visit to Pembroke, you went to Winterbourne Abbess Nine Stones. Mm. And you also went to Tollpuddle to visit the Tollpuddle Martyrs Museum. Yes which you explained is this moving place that tells the story of the first labor organizers in the UK mm. who were brutally punished. Mm. And I think, I mean, to your point about the veneer of history on display in a place like Pembury, there are these much deeper ancient, in some cases, uh, traditions yes. that um, exist too. Yes. <laughs> and I think even the simple inclusion of them in the book starts to um, build a very coherent critique around the just the homogeneity of remembering that's going on in a place like Pembury. Mm, yes, I come back to who is it for really and and it's plain from the demographic in information um, that it's for richer, older white people and that, well, lovely for them but what's going to happen when they die? You know, I really am curious about what Poundbury will look like in the distant future. And we were mentioning futurity early, earlier on, and I have a kind of, um, uh, there's a tension for me between them, because on the one hand, yeah, you know, for me not having kids and, um, you know, feeling that I'm of my time and of my place and life is here and then it stops and, you know, there's nothing more I can do about that. But at the same time, you know, the work of Afrofuturists has also influenced me. The idea that we can make a, a future and also in anarchy, you know, other futures are possible. Um, and thinking about what Charles especially has talked about so this word eternity that comes up a lot in the material that I was researching around him. You know, monarchy isn't eternal. It's actually in a minority in the world. And what happens to someone like Poundbury post-monarchy, what happens to it when, you know, the original people it was built for are gone, you know, how will it look? William apparently has absolutely no interest in it. You know, I imagine the people of Poundbury might be feeling a little bit um, abandoned at the moment, and of Charles's um, release statement saying that you know he can't continue with projects that he was into when he was prince. Now he's king, so yeah, what does happen to it? I'm quite, <laughs> and it feels like that could happen in a fairly short space of time as well. That mm -hmm. something could crumble um, here. So yeah, what will happen? Will will people um, build extensions and uh, I don't know uh, get solar panels and you know <laughs> will, will they uh, break the rules and you know what will happen to it you're referring to this infamous covenant that any resident of Pembroke needs to sign basically a long list of 
of rules to obey, which includes um, not having satellite dishes, not using PVC window frames, no um, photo valix on the roof, uh, not too many pot plants outside yeah, the front door, yeah. a very specific color palette to choose from mm -hmm. when you're painting your front door. Yeah, and font as well. And font. <laughs> Part of me can imagine certain people really getting off on this. <laughs> this. This degree of restriction and control. Yeah. And I mean, to some extent, the occupation of Pembury is totally voluntary mm -hmm. and self-selecting. Um, but at the same time, it's also a kind of prototype for a form of urbanism that's proliferating. I mean, there's more yes. Poundbury's in development. Um, and Poundbury copyists as well. It's not just the Duchy of Cornwall that's building them. Um, it's, it's other people too. And also making them worse as well, which is hard to imagine. Um, but the, that um, project that's taking place in Southampton is going to be a smart city as well. So there's going to be this whole surveillance culture uh, going on there too, which I don't think is currently the case in, mm. in Poundbury. I want to go back to this fissure that you're netting, especially in the death of the Queen and um, Charles's ascension to the throne, that there is or has been, uh, as you note in the book, an outpouring of republicanism and irreverence. And of course, it's an opportune moment to, to pry it open a little more, which I think is what the book is doing. Has there been, what is the, what is the reaction been uh, from people who've read it, or what have you heard? What's the feedback been? The feedback, people have really enjoyed the book. Or at least if they haven't enjoyed it, they haven't told me about it. But the people who have read it, have, have, I think it's been quite mind-blowing for them. Um, and in terms of republicanism, I mean, on, the, um, on coronation day, I knew it was going to be a bit of a tedious day, so I decided to have um, an end of project party on, on that day. And people really, really went for it and really loved it and, and felt that it was a space um, f for them where they didn't have to pretend, as we had done with the Queen, we, we'd all had to pretend that we liked her, that she was a great leader, that she was wise, that she was everybody's mum slash grand slash whatever. Um, with Charles, people really dislike him. Um, so there's this kind of, I don't know, a, 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 almost like a liberation feeling that we don't have to pretend anything and that people who are supporting it, there's something wrong with them rather than something wrong with us. And at the party we had, yeah, some little performances um, Aaron Williamson um, presented um, uh, The Ghost of Queen Diana. Uh, of course, Diana is completely absent in Poundbury as well, which is quite astonishing. Um, and uh, we had a, a, a game where we, um, where uh, Katie Baird and Serge Nicholson set up a game where we smashed some um, uh, royal, you know, uh, souvenir crockery with catapults. Um, Kay Hyatt did a um, a performance where she um, was a royal swan because the uh, monarch owns all the, all the swans in the UK and, uh, and, and she did a little performance with a swanny whistle um, <laughs> and I did a reading and there were other sort of bits and pieces going on. We had a, a, a cake, I made a symbol called the Poundbury Ears so we had a cake with that and you know and, and just odd things going on and it just felt like a space of yeah irreverence, freedom, silliness um, relief, really, that we didn't have to participate 
even though it's going on and it's unignorable and that you know the red arrows flew over the house and made a lot of noise even though it's completely unavoidable and totalitarian we were also able to make a different sort of space for ourselves on that day too um it's yeah. it feels like an awakening yeah i think to, so to the potential of one's own ability to determine one's sense of self yes outside of the hierarchies of class that originate in yes. the monarchy. Yeah, and it's not just class. We have to have to pay attention to decolonization tactics as well, because mm -hmm. of course monarchy is all about empire and colony too, so mm. um, colonization. So uh, yeah, there's, I mean, I think the, the strength of, um, of black and brown people, especially in the UK at the moment, um, really is so exciting to see how that might to see the direction that that might go in terms of what the monarchy does. And of course, I think monarchy are freaking out um, because they're being exposed. And, uh, and their whole MO is about covering up and hiding and nothing to see here and, and, and making it seem as though it's normal and natural. What are your hopes for what the book can do? Yeah, well, what do I hope it can do? I feel like it's done what it's had to do, really. It's taught me how to make a book. It's taught me, I mean, I knew how to write a book anyway, but it's taught me really how to make it myself. It's, so it's taught me a lot of autonomy. It's taught me not to be afraid of my own, not that I was afraid of it anyway, but, but to, to go deeper into my own strangeness because it's lovely. And what it might do, well, I'm hoping people might read it. And who that is, I'm not really sure and it will go where it goes. It's a bit like throwing a bottle in the sea and, and hoping it will, you know, message in a bottle, hoping it will pop up somewhere. I enjoyed it so much as a kind of instrument for me mm. in understanding my relationship to the built environment more broadly, oh. or my relationship to normativity, mm. which I think those two terms are interchangeable. Yeah. The shape we decide cities ought to be is obviously an embodiment of certain norms or conventions yes. and restrictions and controls. And so when anyone writes defiantly about architecture <laughs> and picks apart the way in which a building or a city or a town is an embodiment of power, I sit up in my chair and I become deeply interested and excited. So. I just want to say thanks for that oh, because um, I think this extends well beyond the subject of Pembury into something much more broad and profound. Well, so, you've made my day. Thank you. Thank you, Charlotte. Thanks for listening to Scaffold. You can buy Charlotte's weird and wonderful book on her website, charlottecooper.com. And dare I say, I think it belongs on every architect's shelf. Scaffold is an Architecture Foundation production. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I make this show. The theme music is composed and performed by Luke Blair. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. If you like the show, spread the word on social media and leave a rating on iTunes. Thanks to Charlotte Cooper. Special thanks this week to Open City. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you next time.